I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we discuss a case involving the constitutionality of capital punishment. This was the first capital punishment case that the court has heard since 2008, and it's called Glossop versus Gross. The question is whether Oklahoma's protocol of lethal injection violates the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. Joining me to discuss this important case are two leading scholars and advocates. David Rivkin is partner at Baker Hostetler. He's also a member of the firm's litigation, international and environmental teams, and co-leader of the firm's national appellate practice. He uh, co-wrote the brief for the state of Oklahoma in the Glossop case. Ellen Kreitzberg is professor of law at Santa Clara University. She also created and directs the Death Penalty College, a residential training program held every August at Santa Clara to train lawyers assigned to the defense of a capital case. Uh, welcome, David and Ellen. And David, I'll start with you. Um, in the oral arguments before the Supreme Court in the Glossop case, what was the central constitutional claim that uh, the challengers were making about the unconstitutionality of Oklahoma's protocol, and what was the state's response? Well, uh, pleasure to be with you. The, uh, to put it uh, crisply, the uh, uh, the challenges were claiming that the Oklahoma's protocol, in particular the first drug being administered, which is called midazolam, did not have a sufficient um, effect in rendering the recipients insensate to pain. And therefore, given the fact that nobody denies that the second and the third drugs, the ones really caused death, uh, are quite painful, created um, a substantial risk or in the words of the Supreme Court, um, an objectively intolerable risk of harm that was sufficient to violate the Eighth Amendment. The state's response was that this is very much not the case, that there is plenty, well, to be precise, that the way it came up, of course, to the Supreme Court and the challenge to the factual findings by the district court um, that are reviewed uh, for clear error that uh, the district court made ample findings that midazolam, the use of midazolam, the way it was used, the dosage it was used, the manner it was used did not create um, at all that objectively intolerable risk of harm. Uh, the state also argued that there is um, a burden on the petitioners based upon the Supreme Court case called Bayes versus Reese, where petitioners are challenging a particular execution method uh, in addition to having the burden of establishing that it presents an objectively intolerable, it's used objectively intolerable risk of harm, have to put forward an alternative uh, execution protocol uh, that is, should be called, available to the state, that a failure to do so not only violates the teaching of Bayes versus Reese, but transform, but otherwise is necessarily a challenge to the method of execution. Um, under, under the Eighth Amendment to a challenge to the death penalty's constitutionality per se. Well, that issue has been disposed of, not surprisingly, uh, a long time ago of the Supreme Court. The death penalty itself is constitutional. Thanks so much for that, David. Ellen, at the oral argument, Justice Kagan said the question comes down to this, that no one disputes that the uh, second and third drug, drugs involving potassium chloride make people feel, feel like they're being burned alive, but there's uncertainty about whether or not the first drug does or does not render someone unconscious enough uh, not to feel pain. Is that the central issue? And can you describe what the challengers are saying about the uncertainties about how that first drug might, in fact, make, make people feel like they were being burned alive? Um, Jeff, yes, you're exactly right that at least as to that question, there were three questions before the Supreme Court, but the question about the specific drugs used in Oklahoma, you need to understand that there are, in fact, three drugs that are used. Uh, everyone agrees, and the government even concedes, that the second two drugs, uh, the second one, which is a paralytic, and the third one, uh, potassium chloride, which stops the heart, would be unconstitutional if those were the only two drugs administered uh, to, a, to the inmate. And so the focus of the inquiry is let's look at the first drug. 
in 2008 in Bayes versus Reese, they looked at the first drug, which was a barbiturate, and they said it appeared that that would properly sedate the inmate, and therefore he would be in a deep coma-like state, and therefore would not feel the excruciating pain of the second and the third drug. In this case, the first, the second and third drug are the same, but it's the first drug that's different. And in uh, uh, Richard Glossop's uh, case, the first drug is a drug called midazolam. It uh, was not used in the earlier case. And the concern with, with the midazolam is that it is not approved by the Food and Drug Administration to be a sole anesthetic drug for use in painful surgery. It does not reliably induce a deep coma-like unconscious state. And there is no evidence that it is substantially used that way in the industry. So if the inmate is not properly sedated, uh, then the concern is that the excruciating pain of the second and third drug makes the entire procedure unconstitutional because it essentially says it, it creates the objectively intolerable risk of harm. And what Justice Kagan was referring to is especially the potassium chloride is like being burned alive from the inside. David, um, the liberal justices did focus on uncertainty about the effects of midazolam. Justice Breyer said it's like an anti-anxiety drug like Xanax. D does, does the state concede that if midazolam doesn't induce coma-like consciousness, then the potassium chloride would violate the Eighth Amendment? No, and this is uh, an important point. The petitioners trotted out throughout the, their briefing and oral argument, the reference to the coma-like level of unconsciousness. Our position has always been that a coma-like level of unconsciousness is not, repeat, not constitutionally required. All that is required is that it produces sufficient level of unconsciousness um, as to, um, in, in its recipient, to render it in a recipient insensate to pain and not to pain over a period of, of you know, not to be flippant of hours and days, but during the window during which the second and the third drug, and you know, incorrectly described the effects, would in fact um, uh, kill the, uh, uh, um, the person being executed. Now, that's a very, very important distinction because there's plenty and, and respect. We have to be careful because it, well, one of, let me say back up and say one of the weird things about the oral argument here is, and it underscores why it was probably wrong for the court to grant certain in the first instance, only took four justices, numerous ill-informed scientific observations on the part of various justices about the fundamental difference between a coma-like state of unconsciousness and the deep unconsciousness that renders you sufficiently insensate not to feel pain, which again is what's constitutionally required. To be clear, uh, there's plenty of evidence that midazolam does induce anesthesia. There's plenty of evidence in scientific studies that midazolam alone, and that point was actually brought by us during the argument, is perfectly capable of sustaining, because again, the important thing is sustaining that unconsciousness for hours. You can have long surgical procedures with midazolam being given as a sole source of anesthesia. The reason that's not done is because the use of midazolam at doses to obtain that effect does entail some risks, okay, which are important in life-saving surgeries, not important in the context of execution, but also because for reasons of cost containment, midazolam produces such lasting effects that if you had a three-hour surgery using only midazolam, you would take hours waking up and recovering in hospitals, of course, in this day and age, are trying to uh, have a conveyor belt efficiency when it comes to people being cycled out of operation rooms into recovery and then either being discharged or perhaps spend a few hours in a hospital. So uh, the, the notion that midazolam is incapable of producing uh, uh, lasting uh, anesthesia is risable. And midazolam is used at much lower doses in numerous extremely painful procedures, including colonoscopies and intubations. And given how, in, how Americans in this day and age are concerned about pain, the fact that there's no evidence in the medical literature that 
hundreds of thousands, literally millions of, of fast-moving surgeries, and I say fast-moving, we're talking about 20, 30, 40 minutes, with midazolam alone being used. There are no reports in the literature that, hey, I woke up from my colonoscopy and it hurt. The fact that there are no such reports provides an absolutely compelling evidence about how midazolam works. Let me make one final point, which to me was probably the most important thing about this oral argument. Leaving aside all the scientific disputes, which again should have been reviewed in an appropriately deferential level of review, factual findings by district court affirmed by the 10th Circuit. What troubled me the most is the justices Kagan in particular, but also Sotomayor, were taking the position because there's some medical uncertainty uh, that midazolam can be, not be used. I don't think there's any medical or scientific uncertainty. But more importantly than that, it is well established in the case law, and I will mention you know, a case called Gonzalez versus Carhartt, which is one of the a major cases having to do with defining in the aftermath of Roe versus Wade, sort of what are the meets and bounds of, of the right of access to abortion. The court in Gonzalez said very, very clearly that legislatures can legislate against the backdrop of scientific uncertainty. And Article Three courts are supposed to defer to the legislature in the presence of that uncertainty. Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor were basically taking a very opposite tack. Their view was that if there is scientific uncertainty of some kind, let's reserve on how substantial it has to be. But the state has to proceed. But the burden somehow belongs to the state to cure that scientific uncertainty. If that were the rule, and it's most emphatically not the rule, that would not only vitiate any prospects of finding an Eighth Amendment compliant method of execution, but would fundamentally overturn lots and lots of other statutes um, that state legislatures put forward. And for that matter, not just state legislatures, federal government as well. Um, Ellen, David makes an interesting point. Uh, in, the, in the Bayes versus Rees case, which involved a challenge to Kentucky's lethal injection protocol, that was 2008. Uh, I think that was a 7-2 to two case. Justices Breyer and Stevens joined the majority in holding that Kentucky's protocol was not unconstitutional, even in the face of some uncertainty, and it was just Justices Ginsburg and Souter who dissented. Uh, is, is David uh, correct that uh, the addition of Justices Kagan and Sotomayor might create a new four-justice uh, uh, group that's willing to second-guess the findings of district courts in these, in these Eighth Amendment cases? Well, Jeff, there's actually a couple of different issues going on. First of all, in Bayes versus Reese, it was a very different issue that went before the court. In that case, the, the petitioner, the, the inmate in that case, conceded that if this protocol that was, done, that was formulated in Kentucky was administered properly, that if all the procedures were followed accurately, that it was a constitutionally permissible procedure. And so their concern and their challenge was, we don't really think the Kentucky Department of Corrections can get it right. We don't think they're going to be able to administer it appropriately, and therefore it's going to be unconstitutional. And they had some basis to fear that, in, in large part, in, in 2006, there were five or six days of hearings in California, where a federal judge in California, when he examined how California was administering their lethal injection protocol, he found that, that, that the procedures, the way they were implemented, made it unconstitutional. And he held the California procedure was unconstitutional. Now, in Kentucky, they only had had one execution. And so when the justices reviewed the procedure in Kentucky, they looked at one experience. And what happened is the justices said, we don't really have evidence on this record to be convinced that the Department of Corrections cannot do it correctly. While the vote was seven to two in Bayes, it was a very splintered opinion. Uh, there were seven different uh, um, opinions that were written. In the majority, no opinion, no single opinion got more than three, uh, three votes. Roberts, Kennedy, and Alito joined one opinion. That was the largest group. Um, Justice Stevens, although he concurred, actually took that opportunity to say he felt the whole death penalty process was unconstitutional. Justice Breyer raised concerns. He went with the majority, but, but clearly he raised concerns. But they turned on the fact that the record and the evidence was not sufficient. What's happening in Oklahoma 
is they said even if Oklahoma does everything correctly, it can't be constitutional because that first drug, midazolam, will not impose a sufficient anesthetic state to uh, to prevent the other two drugs from causing the excruciating pain. And I just uh, differ with Mr. Rifkin in that the medical and scientific literature does not support the fact uh, that midazolam is adequate for that purpose. And when Justices Kagan and Sotomayor are not trying to upend all the state and federal legislatures, I think this is a little bit of an alarmist call, what they were looking at is the district court record and they said the findings by the district court were not supported by the evidence that was presented at that hearing. And there was one government expert who testified, and when he testified to his conclusions, he basically didn't base it on any of the scientific literature, on the information in the community. He cited drugs.com uh, and some other source. And so they said the basis of his opinion cannot be credited or his opinion cannot be credited because it's not based on reliable and accurate information, the kind of evidence that experts in that field rely upon. So the issue in Oklahoma is very different in saying uh, we are not, even if everything's done correctly, this procedure with this drug is unconstitutional. The state is free to impose capital punishment. They're free to impose lethal injection. Find a drug that works. Other states have found drugs that work. There were 11 other executions that were carried out uh, using a different first drug, a different um, sedative. But the three drugs that used midazolam in, in 2014 were absolutely horrific. In January in Ohio, Dennis McGuire had a, had a botched execution gasping for 25 minutes. In April, this case, Clayton Lockett uh, took took. Uh, an incredible amount of time when he finally died of a heart attack. And in July, Joseph Wood in Arizona, who was gasping for one hour and 40 minutes, given that evidence, I don't know how anyone can assert that midazolam is an appropriate anesthetic. David, what is the response to why Oklahoma doesn't use uh, other drugs? Justice Alito was quite direct on this question. He said in the oral argument, let's be honest about what's really going on here. Oklahoma and other states could carry out executions painlessly. Uh, but he, he says that uh, they, it, is it appropriate for the judiciary to countenance what amounts to a guerrilla war against the death penalty? And right. he said it was because of that earlier, those earlier challenges, the guerrilla war, that states like Oklahoma are not able to obtain more reliable drugs. Is that accurate? It is accurate, and the same qu question actually was posed by, um, followed on um, by Justice Kennedy, who pointed to the attorney for petitioners that you failed to answer Justice Alito's question. I might have to answer this question, but also, if you don't mind, would take back a little bit what my colleague said. Um, yes, let, let's be honest. <laughs> uh, to paraphrase Justice Alito, what we have here is not a situation where any state which, uh, any state takes very seriously the, the, the difficult issues involved in, on the one hand, carrying the will of, a, of, of its people to impose death penalties for particularly heinous crimes, but yet do that in the most humane and um, in appropriate fashion that they just decided to go and, and try and have a drug. What we have is a concerted effort by death penalty abolitionists, again, the term used by, um, by Justice Alito, that proceed in the following fashion. They identify the drug being used uh, in a given execution protocol, the, the first drug supposed to induce um, unconsciousness. They go and pressure and let's assume that they do so lawfully of all my understanding, there's a lot of coercion involved, the manufacturer or distributor of that drug, get that manufacturer distributor to either pull out of a market entirely or at least refuse to fill the orders of states. That drug is unavailable to the states. Let's remember that all those drugs have limited shelf life. So some states have been more successful than others in, uh, in stockpiling those drugs, but, but eventually that's not a long-term solution. Then the new drug is being used. They put the same pressure on a manufacturer and the same result obtains. So, I mean, to use the, uh, the term often used by the courts in other contexts, what you're creating is, is undue burden on the ability of a state to carry out uh, execution procedures. And the reason the new drugs are being, like midazolam, well, relevant new drugs in the sense that midazolam has been around for a long, long time, but used in the execution protocols because the previous drugs are not 
available and not not available for some mysterious or accidental reasons, but because of concerted pressure by death penalty advocates with justice. Uh, Alito and, and Kennedy, and I'm sure the chief as well as uh, um, as well as, as as Thomas were asking, what what significance do we attach to this fact? Because to me, again, uh, since the ability of a state to carry out death penalty is not in any constitutional doubt, the question of risks has to be analyzed in the context of what's available. And what's available, if availability is narrowed because of the actions of death penalty opponents, even if technically they're not the, the, the petitioners in any given case, is the question that impacts the analysis uh, for purposes of Eighth Amendment. But let me go back a little bit and, 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 and tackle briefly what uh, what uh, Alan said about Medazolam and, and uh, Bayes versus Reese. We disagree in our reading of Bayes versus Reese, but even in the depiction of a case by her, it's clear that the court there looked pretty deferentially and lot for legal labels around uh, in terms of a standard of review of a district court record. But they, they pretty much took the district court record in Bayes' case and ran with it. What we have here is a desire, which is utterly unusual for the Supreme Court, to look at the factual findings of a district court that were fully upheld by the, by the Tenth Circuit with considerable disdain. Now, the narrow point Ellen is talking about, sort of comparing the two experts, frankly, was driven only by Justice Breyer, who is, tends to be quite careful about this, most things. And yes, Justice Breyer did say that his reading, and let's give it, you know, full flavor, that he looked at the record and he concluded that the expert for the petitioners made a very weak case, very weak case. But the expert for the government, in his opinion, did not substantiate its case at all, okay? And therefore, sort of an old adage, something, no matter how small, trumps nothing. Well, there are a couple of responses to that. First of all, um, that is not our reading of the record below. It's not our reading of factual findings. But second, the judiciary has historically been able to take judicial notice of scientific studies. Every single scientific study that we cite and in, in their fullness and not just you know, little blurbs or little pieces of language manifests perfectly clearly that midazolam properly administered, everything has to be properly administered, the last point I'll, I'll tackle, produces perfectly sufficient effects, rendering the recipient insensate for periods of 20, 30, 40 minutes, which is more than enough for the lethal drugs to do their work. And there is no serious dispute about it. So even if one feels that the the specific testimony of an expert, and by the way, there was no effort below to challenge the, um, the sort of legitimacy of the expert's qualifications. They, to use a technical word, nobody made any Dolbert-type challenges. The person involved is a highly respected authority in pharmacology. This is our expert. Um, with, with that in mind, you know, if you wanted to go in and personally acquaint yourself with a literature, which actually seemed like both Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor did, you cannot come with any other conclusion other than the fact that we perfectly sufficiently carried our burden. All right. Now, as, as to my last point, going back to the question of uncertainty, there's a fundamental difference in, Justice Ginsburg did not really say much during the argument, so it's hard to deduce where she's going to come out. But Justice Breyer, I think, is at least prepared to look at this case as a case appropriately reviewing uh, factual findings of a district court on a clear error standard. Justice Kagan and Sotomayor clearly seemed inclined to make a far more fundamental challenge and say, because we feel there is a risk that the individuals involved might awake during the administration of second and third drug, and there's no scientific certainty that that is not the case, you state lose. I would again submit to you that that approach is utterly inconsistent, not only with base, but inconsistent with the way in which courts have approached 
challenges to statutes that were passed by state legislature or the federal legislature that in the against the backdrop of some scientific uncertainty and would fundamentally render death penalty impossible and rather many other exercises of governmental power enforcement. One final point, I don't want to rehash the details of what happened with particular execution, but every single execution Ellen's talking about um, can be explained away and was explained away by reference to the improper administration of the drug where you do not properly insert um, the needle into a vein or uh, the needle gets dislodged and the drug is not administered um, that gets injected into the muscle or something else happens. I mean, let's stipulate that this is serious business, that the execution protocol has to be, in addition to the types of drugs used, has to be carefully done. And if it does not take place, then bad results obtained. Incidentally, one of the things that is remarkable about Oklahoma protocol, it embodies the state of art um, safeguards, quite aside from the effects of midazolam, as Ellen knows very well, we put forward in the record the fact that we have a medical team that monitors in real time the administration of midazolam and before the execution itself, which is really second and third drug and proceed, administers numerous tests to ensure that the person is really insensate and subjects the person to noxious and painful stimuli. And only once they are satisfied that the person is in sufficiently insensate state, then they the execution proceeds. That most, let's call them auxiliary safeguards relating to the protocol itself and not the, the type of a drug, were not present at all in base. So we are actually far more Eighth Amendment uh, compliant, if you will, providing much greater assurances of compliance with the Eighth Amendment than the situation in base. Great. Well, lots of points there, and I'd like Ellen to respond to as, as many as she thinks uh, fit. Uh, first, um, we have Justice Alito's point that the uh, unavailability of, of other drugs is a result of guerrilla warfare by death penalty opponents, a point that's been echoed by liberal critics of the death penalty, including Dahlia Lithwick at Slate and Noah Feldman at Bloomberg View. Uh, and then there's the question of whether uh, the botched executions of midazolam, which I think there have been uh, 15 times that midazolam has been used, is due to improper administration or to lack of certainty about the effects of the drug. And then we have the question of how uh, much certainty judges need, and uh, the challenges were arguing that really most of the claims about midazolam are based on extrapolation from studies done on rats and dogs, and it's really completely uh, – there's, there's no serious evidence that this uh, causes coma-like uh, uh, state. Um, so, so Ellen, uh, uh, thoughts on, on those and other questions? Okay, three, uh, I think, very important issues. First, the, the comment by Justice Alito, and it certainly hit the airwaves and has gone viral, as they say. Um, and I have to admit, when I heard that from Justice Alito, and, and, and actually Justice Scalia echoed it, uh, the chief judge, uh, Justice, jumped in on it, it really distressed me. Uh, it's What Justice Alito was saying was that there's no allegation, certainly, that Glossop or, or his team is in any way trying to um, hide or prevent the access to drugs, and nobody's suggesting that. Uh, there's really no indication that – I don't know who these death penalty abolitionists might be that are suddenly uh, preventing the access to drugs. Certain manufacturers, uh, many of them that are European-based, have decided for market and economic reasons – um, reasons I would think most conservatives would embrace, that it's not in their economic interest to sell these drugs for purposes of execution. They continue to sell these drugs for medical purposes, for uses in hospitals, for the purposes for which they want them. Um, but there's not a – in some ways, I feel like uh, the abolitionists have suddenly been incredibly empowered. It's never appeared that they had that much uh, force or influence before. Um, but, but it's distressing to see that people who are acting lawfully, companies who are making market decisions uh, and economic rationales for how they want their drugs to be used, suddenly provide a basis for the court to say, if the best drugs aren't available, the second best are good enough. I certainly don't think, given that everyone concedes how important and significant the death penalty is, that the standard of good enough for government work should be the standard we use in, death in the death penalty. So I'm not persuaded that there is any 
basis in an Eighth Amendment constitutional analysis about the availability of drugs or why they are or not available that should come into play. It's like saying if the only thing that's available is a machete, then we can execute people with a machete. And I don't think anyone would suggest that. So I think that is a emotional appeal that has no basis in constitutional argument. We should put that aside. On the second issue about um, the botched executions, I think was your second question, that there's been a number of times midazolam has been used. One of the uh, difficulties with evaluating the executions is we talked about that there's actually three drugs that are involved. The second drug is a paralytic. So it, it stops all movement. Uh, and because of that second drug, that's the paralytic, a lot of the executions that use this three-drug protocol, it's actually impossible to determine whether or not the inmate is in excruciating pain. So what happened in a handful of executions, it's correct, there were frequently problems in the administering of the drug, is that the paralytic did not get through properly and therefore, we're actually able to witness the gruesome and horrible writhing of the inmate on the gurney while the potassium chloride, the, the fire, if you will, inside was burning. Um, but the problem with the administration of the drug gives us a window into some of these issues. When we talk about how carefully these protocols need to be devised, if you look at the history of lethal injection, what happened was exactly the opposite. Lethal injection started in Oklahoma because one afternoon when the medical uh, association wouldn't help come up with a protocol, uh, the medical examiner in an afternoon wrote one up. You don't see any evidence in any of these states of the kind of attention, care, and vetting in coming up with a protocol that you see in even more mundane legislative transactions. There are not public hearings. There are not experts who testify. There is essentially none of that kind of vetting. They come up with a protocol and suddenly it's passed. Even with Oklahoma, who came up with a new protocol with nitrogen gas, uh, again, there were no hearings. Someone comes up with the idea, the legislature passes it, the governor signs it. That's not the kind of care and attention that is required to make sure that these are done properly. As to the last point, how much certainty is needed, we need a degree of certainty in terms of the fact that these executions can be carried out in a constitutional fashion. You're obviously limited as to what kind of evidence you can have. We can't test these drugs out on humans. Um, so the only kind of scientific testing that is done may be on animals. But if you look at the record, there is not literature to support the fact uh, that midazolam is an appropriate sedative. It can induce a sedated state. The problem is in whether it can maintain it. And in the arguments they talked about and in the materials that were submitted is when the body is subjected to some sort of jolt and some sort of painful circumstance that happens with the second and the third drug, it essentially jolts the inmate out of the sedated state and makes them conscious. So the issue is not whether midazolam can sedate you initially, it's whether it can maintain it during the time that the second and third drugs are administered. And that's why midazolam is used mostly as a preliminary anti-anxiety drug. Before surgery, it's given to people to sedate them, to calm them, so that then the real sedative, the real barbiturate, because uh, midazolam is not a barbiturate, can be administered to put them in that state that will keep them unconscious. Thank you for the comprehensive answers to those three questions. Uh, one, one more round, and then we'll have closing arguments. David, assuming hypothetically that the court struck down the use of midazolam as violating the Eighth Amendment, how hard would it be for states like Oklahoma to find drugs that the court has approved in the past, such as sodium biopentol? Well, the short answer is it would be hard, um, <laughs> given, and I'm forced to revisit the first observation that Ellen made, but I would say the following. It would um, be difficult, if not impossible, 
given the concerted effort to make those drug, to render those drugs unavailable, and I'm not being done for market forces, and I'll elaborate that in a second, uh, to um, continue to maintain lethal injection as a viable method. And then we are presented, and I know it's a difficult discussion because we're a civilized society, but you know, talking about um, firing squads, talking about uh, what California did until quite late in the 20th century, use of gas, which has all sorts of negative connotations given what happened during World War II, the point by way to which Justice Sotomayor alluded. Um, it would be, I mean, one of the reasons lethal injections are being used, again, uh, is because states wanted to carry out executions in a way that's not only as humane as possible, uh, as, as Eighth Amendment compliant as possible, because they wanted to do so in a way that is reassuring to the citizenry, so that there's a, a certain amount of symbolism involved here and, and many things that are relevant um, to what your analysis of, of, of government action. So it, it would be very problematic. But let me briefly just address two points. Look, let, Alan, let's be honest. If anybody reads, for example, a marriage brief uh, in the Supreme Court, and don't even need to go to the record below, we describe in, in great detail how it was not by accident, it was not by voluntary um, uh, decisions of the manufacturers involved. That was a asserted campaign using all sorts of pressure tactics to make other drugs unavailable. And yes, they were not carried out by the petitioners in this case, but again, our brief and the literature is very clear, and that makes clear that there's a, and I'm not begrudging them what they're trying to do. This is perfectly consistent with their constitutional rights in a very American way. There's a group of people, a group of organizations that is trying to render death penalty impossible to carry out. And they're the ones who've been, and then about the, the same experts appear, as we point out, in case after case for the last 20 years challenging death penalty. And you have the same people who are rendering those drugs unavailable. Now, that factual issue is aside, but again, let's acknowledge it. If, if, if your cause is so correct as a matter of constitutional law and morality, why shade the facts from those who are listening to us? But aside from that, the. the, the do you not agree that the inquiry under the Eighth Amendment, the words cruel and unusual, is inherently comparative? And if you look, and this is how the court has approached it in other areas, for example, the conditions of confinement. In looking at the Eighth Amendment challenges to conditions of confinement, the court has always looked at a couple of things. A, whether or not the prison um, uh, authorities are acting in a way that manifests sort of a needless, not really compelled by circumstances desire for cruelty, okay, which nobody suggested is present here. But second, what is avoidable and what is unavoidable? Because look, every confinement, for example, involves an, an element of pain and coercion, deprivation of liberty, but yet confining people does not violate it. Remember? So the question of what's available to the state and why it's not available necessarily has to be considered in the context of Eighth Amendment analysis. Because again, the words cruel and unusual, the word unusual in particular necessarily carries a comparative element within it. Unusual is different from usual. Okay, so to suggest, well, you just look at things in, in isolation, to me, is not consistent with, uh, with the clear import of a constitutional language. A couple of final points. It is a canard to suggest, as, as the petitioners try to do, that the state of Oklahoma or any other state you know, develop those protocols by having you know, one official do some search on the Internet. A great deal of attention and research and analysis has been involved, and that's a fact. The final point, midazolam does not just induce anesthesia. Midazolam maintains a perfectly appropriate level of anesthesia for numerous painful procedures and th that go on for 20, 30 minutes, including colonoscopy, which is one of the most painful medical procedures, okay, including intubations that can last from 5 to 10 minutes. That is more than enough of a plane of anesthesia to mitigate robustly against the possibility of somebody waking up from painful stimuli as a result of administration of second and third drug. More than enough to satisfy the proper constitutional standard, which is objectively intolerable risk of harm. Can somebody, um, can somebody be required, if you're a state, 
to come up with greater certainty? No. Then we get back into the problems, in my view, of what Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor were trying to do about burden shifting. Thank you. Thanks for that. Um, Ellen, uh, final thoughts before closing arguments and prediction. Uh, there were a bunch if, – if the court were to strike down the use of midazolam, what alternative forms of execution do you think would be consistent with the Eighth Amendment? There was an amazing exchange with Justice Alito where the petitioner's lawyer said that uh, even uh, burning someone alive might be okay if there was an effective anesthetic beforehand. Firing squads, gas chambers, would those be consistent under the Eighth Amendment? Um, well, Jeff, there's a couple of issues with the Eighth Amendment that need to be considered. And I think when the question about burning alive, whether or not it would be constitutional, they were addressing only the issue of whether it could be done in the context of without substantial, uh, without that in intolerable use of uh, risk of pain. And so if some were, someone were uh, unconscious completely, one might be able to do it. But there's another aspect of the Eighth Amendment that talks about what's available, uh, what available alternatives there are, whether there's a, a sense of morality or opposition to a certain method of execution. And so I think in that context, that conversation was somewhat misleading in terms of what the Eighth Amendment analysis requires. There is certainly a constitutional way to uh, implement and carry out lethal injection executions. Since the time of Lockett's execution, um, which had so many difficulties, there were, I think, about 11, 12, uh, somewhere around a dozen executions in three other states with lethal injection, where they used a different first drug. They used a barbiturate that was able to properly sedate the individual, um, and they were properly um, applied. Certainly, the, the implementation of the protocol is key. And they were carried out in a constitutionally appropriate manner. So to suggest that if midazolam is taken away, that this Oklahoma has no ability to carry out executions is really just not accurate. Other states that had used midazolam, uh, like Tucky uh, and Ohio, have decided not to anymore because of the problems connected with it. And they're looking around and determining what substitute drug they can use. So states have recognized this doesn't work and are willing to modify and adjust it. It's really unclear to me why Oklahoma is not willing to do the same. Um, the two other small points is when we talk about what the states are doing and how they are doing it, we also should recognize that recently in connection with these lethal injection executions, states have taken more to secrecy rather than transparency. And that's what happened in Mr. Lockett's case. The defendants had uh, asked to have disclosed the nature of the drug so they could put forward information in advance about potential problems. And that information was not disclosed to the attorneys or to the public. And that lack of transparency and that determination to engage in secret uh, protocols and secrecy with respect to the drugs is really not helpful and not consistent with the kind of system of justice that we have. The, the final comment I would make is there's no question that implementing a death penalty is, is challenging and difficult work. So many people are affected, including the people who work at the prison. Imagine how traumatic it was for the, the people who were trying to carry out that execution in Oklahoma that night. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they were incredibly affected by it. So as we think about how we want to create these protocols, we should realize that this group of prison guards and administrators are really not trained uh, professionals in, in death work, if we can. They're not medical technicians, but we want them to administer drugs. They're not psychologists, but we want them to be present in someone's last minutes. They're not moral and religious leaders, but we put them in this area of moral ambiguity so I think Oklahoma and the other states need to sit down and carefully and thoughtfully identify what is a protocol that's constitutionally permissible and what also works for all of the people involved in, this, in these death penalty uh, procedures. Many thanks for that. All right, uh, David Rifkin and Ellen Kreitzberg, it's time for closing arguments. Uh, David, how do you expect the court will rule in this case and how should it rule? 
Well, I think this search should not have been taken up. That would have been the right result. And uh, to use a technical term, having taken it up, once the full record was presented to them, they should have dug it. Um, that's not what happened. And again, because this case really should have been viewed as the review of uh, all the factual findings by the district court that had been approved by the Court of Appeals. That's not how it unfolded. I fully expect that uh, the Supreme Court would uphold um, the um, Eighth Amendment compliance of Oklahoma Protocol. Take a stab, I would expect that it would rule five to four. I would expect that um, Justice Breyer would have a, a, um, a concurrence uh, in the dissent by, in fact, making a narrow point that he feels that the factual findings of a district court uh, are, not, um, are not supportable given how he interprets the testimony of our expert compared to a testimony of the petitioner's expert. Um, it's troubling, but at least it's narrow. Um, I suspect that Justice, well, more than suspect, I believe that Justice Kagan and Sotomayor are going to present a broader uh, dissent that takes fundamental issue with the level of certainty that needs to be demonstrated by the state that uh, an objectively intolerable risk of harm uh, would not be present. I think that is very, very troubling. Uh, as to Justice Ginsburg, I, I suspect she'll probably join Justice uh, Kagan and Justice Sotomayor. Um, so the challenge would not succeed. But I think the fact that we moved in a remarkably short time from a 7-2 um, plurality opinion and base, and I agree with Alan, the base is a, is a complicated opinion to this 5-4, you know, enough to, to sustain what the state is doing, but troubling because it tells you that we're you know, one vote away, one new justice on the Supreme Court away from upsetting the whole apple cart. I, I would find it to be highly, highly troubling. Thanks very much for that. Uh, Ellen Kreitzberg, how do you expect the court to rule in the Glossop case, and how should it rule? Well, Jeff, it might be comforting to you know at the very end I agree a lot with what David said in terms of his assessment of the various judges. Uh, the one justice we're looking at, as happens more and more often these days, is, of course, Justice Kennedy. I agree as Robert, Justice Roberts, Thomas, Scalia, and Alito would vote to uphold um, the protocol in Oklahoma. It appears uh, that Justice Kagan, Sotomayor, Ginsburg, and Breyer – in probably the ways that um, David described it, would, would vote to um, not to uphold it. And Justice Kennedy is, is the question mark. Um, one possibility and, and one way that the four justices who would like to reverse the protocol um, might get his vote is actually a determination to send this back to the district court for additional fact-finding. Uh, one of the issues that kept coming up in the argument was the dearth of information and evidence. This case went up on an injunction. There was, a, I think, a one-month discovery uh, time that was allowed for, for information to be exchanged. There was three days of hearings, which is actually quite short. Uh, in, in California, the Judge Fogel had over five days of hearings, and that was preceded by days of stipulated testimony. And so there are, are a lot of gaps uh, in the record. And it wouldn't completely surprise me if in a five to four vote, they send it back to the district court for additional fact finding and to fill in those holes and make uh, judgments and assessment, assessments on a more complete record. If they don't do that, uh, I think it's difficult to tell where Justice Kennedy would go. He seemed only asked one question. I think he knows that the world is watching him and trying to evaluate everything he says. And it only related to the perspective of what should we do about the unavailability of drugs caused by anti-death penalty uh, individuals or groups. And that really doesn't give us any insight into how he views the protocol, but it shows some, some level of antipathy towards challenging the death penalty. So I think I would leave it at that. <laughs> Forgive me, if hopefully not to upset the apple cart here, but if I can be indulged for a minute and I can just pose one question for you, of course, to, to Alan. 
in terms of what the record shows. I'm just curious, Ellen, do you disagree with my characterization that midazolam is used as a sole uh, source of anesthesia in numerous fast-moving and very painful medical procedure, millions of them. There's absolutely no indication in the record that any of the patients, upon awakening, ever complain about it. And given the way things work in modern America, if somebody had an intubation, a colonoscopy, or a femoral artery insertion of some kind, and woke up and felt pain, we would absolutely hear about it. Am I, am I misstating the, the state of facts? Um, as far as the use of midazolam is concerned, again, these are procedures that don't last hours, but certainly last 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes. Am I, am I wrong a in final, describing this record? A final response to that last question. Okay, Jeff, uh, contrary to your rules of not positing them across the, the table, but um, when I look at the record, uh, the things that are clear in the record are that the FDA has not approved midazolam for use in medical uh, as a sole anesthetic drug for painful surgery. Uh, it is clear in the record that it does not reliably induce the deep unconsciousness and may be able to maintain that state in light of the administration of both the paralytic drug and the uh, potassium chloride that burns the individual from the, from the inside out. There is no substantial practice of use uh, with respect to midazolam for executions, and the four other states that have used it are essentially abandoning it, except for Oklahoma, because of the difficulties that are faced with it. When we look at how much of the drug is administered, Oklahoma's only response was, let's just give them more midazolam to make it work. And all the experts agree that that is not effective because more of the drug does not make it more lethal. Uh, it only... Uh, administers more does not guarantee that it will keep them in that sufficiently deep anesthetic state. Uh, so I do disagree with that record. Uh, it is not reflected in the um, record below. It's not reflected in the evidence that was reviewed uh, by the court. And the state's expert who espoused that view did it on the basis of extrapolation, of hypothesis, and was unable to cite the, the literature in the field to support his view. All right. With that, I'm going to thank David Rifkin and Ellen Kreisberg for extremely thoughtful, insightful, and substantive observations on one of the most challenging constitutional cases of the term. And as always, I will invite you to listen to the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.